Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Now, registration is open for the third annual Art Business Conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico, September 16th through 18th at the Santa Fe Convention Center. You'll spend three days with artists all over the country intent on accelerating their careers. That includes two days of concentrated art business training designed specifically to get you to the next level and beyond, as well as direct engagement with art industry leaders to envision how all of us can thrive. If you register before July 16th, your all-access badge will be under $300. Crazy, I know. This is the absolute best price you're going to see, so don't wait. Visit clarkhewlingsfund.org conference and lock down your seat at the table. Our guest today is Cindy Kahn. Cindy is the Executive Director of Creative Santa Fe, a nonprofit arts and community development organization. She serves on the advisory boards of the Black Mountain Institute, the National Parks Arts Foundation, and the N-Square Innovators Network. In 2018, she co-chaired Mayor Alan Weber's task force on job creation in Santa Fe. Cindy's been a curator, gallery founder, and creator of art advisory firm Launch Projects. She's lived in Paris, Mexico City, Austin, and New Orleans. Welcome to the show, Cindy. It's really great having you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Well, uh, I want to ask you, you know, just initially, how does someone who started in the art world as a curator end up doing, you know, so much work in community development, jobs and housing? Is that a big pivot for you? <laughs> it's a huge pivot. I ask myself the same question. I would say that because my background education has been in the art, I had been dealing art and working in sort of the field where you all have really focused in terms of arts, entrepreneurship. And I started looking at the reason that I love artists and love the arts is really at its core, it's of course the product, but more than that, it is the way that artists think and the way artists can create something out of absolutely nothing. And so I started thinking that if they can do that with objects and film and performance, what if we start to try to address some of our most challenging issues as a city and as a country and as a world? leveraging the way that artists approach questions to think in new ways about how to solve them. And so uh, eight years ago, I was talking to my board chair about this, and we just decided to try tackling really big, intractable issues in our community, leveraging the power of the arts that we have in Santa Fe. So Cindy, was there one pivotal moment when you sort of put down the champagne at some exhibition reception and realized that, you know, your love of art was going to turn into... Uh, this much broader contribution to the community? Yeah, quite literally. Um, I was actually at an art fair and realized that the apex of my career as an art dealer really looked like that. And I wanted to figure out a way to give back. And so that was in 2011. And so my now board chair and I sat down and talked about what the arts could do, what my background and experience and what his sort of philanthropic background and entrepreneurial background, what that might look like. And so we decided we'd look into starting a nonprofit. And when we did some research, Santa Fe currently has about 850 nonprofits in a community of 80,000. So we decided rather than trying to create another nonprofit, we looked into nonprofits that existed in our community that we might be able to take over and create a Santa Fe existed and really their mission was to 
support the arts economy in Santa Fe. And so we asked if we could take them over and they said, yes. Now it's suddenly, you know, sort of trendy. And of course, part of the mission of the Clark Healings Fund to get different sectors to collaborate beyond the traditional silos uh, that we often see. Were you looking ahead uh, when you were thinking about this or did you just have good timing? You know, the way I would describe it is we were crossing a stream by feeling for stones, <laughs> which is one of my favorite quotes. It was just an instinctive notion that there were so many organizations working in such important fields and even within the, their own fields, they were not working together. And so Creative Santa Fe has the luxury of being a connective tissue type of organization. And so we realized that if we could get people within their own sectors actually talking and working together and then bringing in new voices, new people to the table that either don't typically have a voice at the table or aren't typically included like artists, we really could change the way that people talk. Because if you only ask experts for their opinion in the field, they only know what's possible and not possible within the parameters of their own knowledge. And then when you bring in artists and young people and new types of thinkers, you really get in it because people don't know what's not possible. And so you start to create a whole new possible. And so we just, we sort of lucked on it and now it's very trendy, but I think this intersection of collaboration and the arts, is very unique and it's something I haven't seen being done in sort of community economic development really anywhere else in the way that we're doing it. You know, uh, Cindy, one of the things that we're currently studying and doing research on at the Clark Healings Fund is the economic impact of artists, uh, specifically at the community level, but also nationally. Artists contribute a phenomenal amount each year to the gross domestic product of the U.S. And, um, you know, some of the things that we've kind of come across and collated that, you know, when individual artists prosper, other professions around them prosper. You know, for every artist that is a, a success, five other guys are a success. Also, of course, you know, everybody sort of knows these days that a, a thriving creative economy is, you know, key to tourism dollars and attracting business. You know, people want a certain lifestyle. Uh, bump for moving to a community, but also artists are job creators. Artists actually hire everything from assistants to um, people to uh, represent them. So my question to you is, what have you seen as the potential economic impact of artists? Do you think that this is a topic that's not explored thoroughly and we need to go deeper on or, or what? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you look at places like Americans for the Arts, they have so much great data about this. And this has been something that we've been working on for the past eight years, is that Creative Santa Fe was started in 2005 as a result of an economic study that the city of Santa Fe and the McCune Foundation commissioned looking at the arts economy. And it came back that it's a $1.1 billion a year economy, but there was no single organization to really spearhead and ensure the long-term sustainability of that economy. So we came to this project with that knowledge. And then you look at, like you said, like the impact that artists make. And I think that it's not even necessarily an issue that we need to study it more. What we need to do is better educate, especially our, our voting population and our leadership, that the arts are not just an amenity. They're a critical function of society and a part of the fabric of both 
social, cultural, and also economic life and livelihood for our country. Let me ask you this. Again, you're director of Creative Santa Fe, and the mission of Creative Santa Fe has expanded beyond just art, uh, did so about eight years ago. What spurred that change? We looked at what we could do, and Creative Santa Fe had been doing a lot of work with things like studio tours and much more traditional approaches to supporting artists. And what we realized is that to really make a dramatic impact on the long-term sustainability and viability of our city and to support the artists, we needed to show the impact that artists can make beyond the art form and beyond what they're making and creating, and also to show the unique capability artists have to problem solve. And so for us, it really became a matter of looking at the arts as an approach, a methodology, and a mindset in addition to the, the literal aspect of creating objects that you can then sell or buy or curate or show. And so I think the best example was our Nuclear Weapons Summit. It was something that nobody would have expected us to do, but we were able to bring people nationally into a room in Santa Fe that were everyone from disarmament to deterrence. We had Heritage Foundation, we had Global Zero and everybody in between. And they started to talk in a new way because we brought the arts in and that's such a leveling factor. It creates empathy. It creates a whole new paradigm of how people communicate, how they listen. And so that changed the tone. And so it was able to change the way we started to think about similarities rather than differences. And we saw that as such an incredible tool that then now we use that for affordable housing, poverty, native resilience and rights, the future of art, and often issues that are really, really hot button issues that have very polar feelings about them. The arts can bring people together that normally would not want to sit in a room together and talk about problem solving. You know, it's interesting in, in that light, uh, being an artist is a little bit like being a philosopher, one might say. It's an inherently interdisciplinary profession, as it were. And so I think what I'm hearing you say is um, the arts, therefore, can be an anchor to have these multidisciplinary conversations about some of the topics that, you know, obviously concern all of us on planet Earth. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think arts are an anchor, but they're also the bridge. You know, they they can hold that and they can hold us together, but then also they create bridges and pathways of understanding and empathy. For instance, if, you know, if you're in a room and it's, you know, Democrats and Republicans, and, you know, if you're going to sit down and talk about politics, it could get really heated. If you're sitting and listening to a concert before you have that conversation, there's a whole new setting of the mind of the spirit. It changes then whatever the conversation is afterwards, because you've had a shared emotional experience that resets people's minds. And that's what we're really seeing works. And it, it's worked to a really surprising extent that it's had the impact that it has in our community discussions. Now, is there anything specifically uh, unique about the art community in Santa Fe? Well, of course, I'm going to say there's everything unique about it. We're <laughs> <laughs> the city different. <laughs> I think that a lot of what makes it so unique and special is that we do have this legacy of so many different cultures and such a long history. So we have the Native American indigenous population, 
And layered upon that is a you know Hispanic population and Spanish colonial population. Layered upon that is sort of the white population that came out the O'Keeffe's and and sort of the 1920s you know group. And so I think we just have a very very multifaceted history that is both contentious and has been very challenging over the years, and also creates this very fascinating cultural fabric that's made Santa Fe quite unique in, I think, globally in the art world. Well, I think also you've got, and, and I want to ask you why this is, why do you think Santa Fe has so many nonprofits, more than 800 for a city of 80,000? Good question. I think that there are so many people that want to do good things here, and there's a lot of money. And so you can start your own nonprofit, you can get it running, you can get it going. And I think that there's a lot of support in our community for nonprofits. There's a lot of philanthropy. And so I think both to our great fortune and a little bit to our community's detriment, we don't have as much incentive to work together and to really pool resources. And so that's in large part what Creative Santa Fe is looking at is how do we pool resources and get all these different groups that are kind of working in silos, even within the same field to work together and to really start thinking in a much more strategic way about how we can all work together on larger projects rather than everybody having their own sort of pet project that, you know, no matter how great it is, it still is a very siloed approach to how to problem solve. So we're talking with Cindy Kahn about uh, the economic impact of artists and also the opportunities for collaboration and breaking down silos. Cindy, I want to ask you, you know, did you study other communities as models of leveraging the arts for economic impact? And and did anything emerge as, you know, sort of key similarities or differences between your community and, and the others you looked at, if so? Absolutely. The first two years of our taking over Creative Santa Fe, we have a series called Imagine Futures. And what we did was we invited leaders in different cities nationally and some internationally who were making major impacts to that intersection of leveraging the arts, community building, and making a major economic impact. So we had everybody from Robert Hammond from the High Line to Jeff Speck, who wrote Walkable Cities, to Candy Chang, who really transformed the Lower Ninth New Orleans, to Eddie Friel, who turned around the economy of Glasgow, Scotland. We had Tony Shea, who's put $350 million in own money into renovating downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. And so for each of those conversations, we brought them to Santa Fe and we paired them with people in our community that we could interview and speak with and then had workshops with key community stakeholders and a lot of public officials, city councilors, mayor, and looking at what lessons could we take from those different cities that we could start to implement here. And so from that, we did a lot of work on walkability in Santa Fe, and that also really spawned the start of building the Yard Arts and Creativity Center, which is an affordable live workspace for artists and creative people that we're building in a neighborhood right, right by where Meow Wolf is, so an industrial neighborhood right in the center of Santa Fe. And that's an $18 million project, and we just got $10.4 million of federal funds to make that happen. So it's been a, a long journey, but that's one example of just a great success working with art space out of Minneapolis looking at their lessons, looking at what they've done throughout the country, and then bringing it here, hiring a local developer, and moving that project forward. 
Yeah, I want to congratulate you on on the win uh, for the tax subsidy. I want to know, um, you. you know, I'd like to, before we sort of jump more into what's possible, I want to know a little bit more about what you're doing, a, a quick rundown of a couple of the major initiatives at Creative Santa Fe. So specifically, let, let's talk for a minute about the Siler Yard Arts and Creativity Center. I think uh, that may be the property you're referencing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and this has to do with with housing. So, can you tell me why housing? How did you identify that housing was a major issue for Santa Fe artists in the first place? Affordable housing is, is a citywide crisis. We're at ninety nine percent rental rate in our city, and it's not getting any better right now. And so, when you look at what our true assets are, so much of that is our young, creative, artistic class. And they are leaving. We only have 38% of our workforce live in Santa Fe because they can't afford to. So they're commuting from Albuquerque, from other areas. And so in order to attract and retain that young, vibrant, creative group that's going to keep our city sustainable for years to come, we needed to start addressing this issue. And so we started leading this project eight years ago. It had been on the books for the city and recommended by different leaders over the years and nobody had been able to really get it off the ground. And so we decided that if there was one thing our organization could do that would make a major impact in our city, it would be to both create this project, but also create a new framework of how you build affordable housing and what it looks like to house people in subsidized living spaces. We're so used to seeing these big projects that are just, you know, as many units as you can possibly squeeze onto a city block. And what we've seen time and time again is that is not a recipe for success. It doesn't get people out of poverty and it doesn't help train people to become entrepreneurial or business leaders or whatever it is they need to learn. So the Siler Arts and Creativity Center is 65 units on five acres of land of affordable live workspace. So there are artist lofts. And we also have, will have a shared resource center on the campus that makes Santa Fe, which is our maker space in town, is going to run. And so we'll be doing training. We'll be doing financial literacy. We'll be doing all sorts of on-site, entrepreneurial business, community training, in addition to giving these you know, affordable housing to the artists and creative individuals that need it. So on the one hand, I mean, I hear you talking more uh, about um, it's not just housing, it's housing and workspace with a career purpose. And you've talked a little bit about some of the things you intend to do to to boost not only the artist's lives, uh, you know, which is obviously basic. If you if you can't find a place to live, uh, some of the other stuff, you know, the the journey to thriving and prosperity is sort of secondary, right? You know, give me a sandwich first. We'll talk about my job later, right? Uh, but you've also focused on on boosting their careers and i think to some you know when people hear that phrase public housing for artists you know one could be forgiven for for that sounding like we're sort of giving up on them you know we're going to move you into public housing for artists oh my gosh your life is over i told you mm-hmm. you shouldn't take get that art degree but but quite the contrary you know you create a pathway for artists to prosper and transition out of this housing is the primary basis for that pathway? Entrepreneurial and business training for artists? Yeah, I I think it is. I think it's learning financial literacy. It's, you know, I think this is exactly what the Clark Healing Fund does. Artists buy 
history and definition have felt like they don't need to know business. And I think there's even this concept that if artists are business savvy, they somehow are lesser artists. And I think that so much of this is to debunk that myth and say, no, no, no. Like if you want to be successful, every single artist is an entrepreneur. And so you have to learn entrepreneurship. I mean, I, my background is in curatorial work. I never knew anything about business until I started, you know, running a nonprofit. And so none of us are born with business skills. We all have to learn it. But I think artists for so long have been taught and have, have believed that they don't need it or they shouldn't have the business skills, that this is, you know, really to debunk that and just say, no, 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 you, if you want to thrive, you need to learn all these skills just like any other business person would, it, you know, any other small business. And so that's really giving them the space to have their business in their home, which these live work lofts, and then the skills training and, and all of, you know, the, the resources they need to have a leg up and to, to become entrepreneurial. So I have a couple of questions, you know, um, I think you're, you're sort of underscoring a key difference possibly between affordable housing for artists and affordable housing as it's generally conceived for the, the general population. I mean, we certainly a lot of what we call a lot of public housing here in, in Brooklyn or, or what people call projects in my neighborhood, they call them projects. Mm-hmm. And, um, you see a lot of focus on sort of getting people prenatal care, uh, making sure that, you know, they have the basics, whether that's, you know, condoms or they have a way to get, you know, bus transportation or whatever. Uh, but if there is any focus on a pathway out, on a pathway, let alone an out, but to prosperity, um, whatever that is, is falling by the wayside. And so I think I'm hearing you say that this is a pivot from that idea. And, you know, I'm curious if that might if actually doing this in this way with artists might provide a better model for public housing in general. Yeah. And that's exactly, I mean, we, we have chosen artists because that's what our organization does. And that's one of the greatest needs in our community. This model that we're creating is something we hope, and and it's not an either, or we're doing all the basic services as well, because these are all still people, you know, some of them are going to be transitioning from homelessness where the the least expensive units are 30% of area median income. For us, that's $14,000 a year. And so we still are providing all the basic services that you're referring to that any you know, responsible project or you know, affordable housing will do. And that's also required by HUD standards, which is you know, the housing subsidy we're getting is HUD. Um, and giving them more, giving them also green spaces and a playground and a basketball court. And you know, the, there's so much to be said for giving people dignity in addition to a roof over their head. And that's a piece that I think has been lacking in large part in a lot of how people approach federal housing and, and, and subsidized housing. And that's even in our own city council, we had to battle a lot for many years over the philosophy that of some councilors saying, you know, we can build 300 units on five acres and you're building 65 and really going to what does housing mean what does equity mean? And look back on projects that don't provide dignity and a pathway in addition to the housing, and you just are creating a cycle of failure. And so it's really been a learning curve. I mean, obviously, for me as a curator, I had no idea how to do any of this eight years ago, but it's also been a learning curve for our entire community, rethinking 
what affordable housing mean and, and thinking about a long-term investment versus a short-term return investment in terms of how many units per acre. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm hearing a couple of things, but one of them is, uh, you know, as we get more sector, it isn't just getting together and having a dialogue that uh, causes people to break down silos and, and gets multiple sectors to work together. Even if we're just talking about different stakeholders within the arts industry, whether that's artists, collectors, gallerists, curators, you know, all the different procurers, all the different people involved in that industry. But it, it's, uh, I think it involves showing that a project like this works and that it is possible to thrive and it, and it is possible to move the needle. Um, so I really like that. And, and speaking of dialogue though, I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us about one more initiative and then I, I want to move on to sort of this idea of silos and, and what it's like to, to break them down. Um, what are the disruptive futures dialogues? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So when I referred to the nuclear weapons summit, we did that in 2016. That was one of them. And that was an effort to, well, that, that sort of was, it birthed them. It was not one. It didn't, disruptive futures dialogue didn't exist before the nuclear weapons summit. But what we found was that we wanted to make a big impact. My, I, my team is three people, including myself and one part-time employee. So how do we, and a board of eight amazing people, how do we make a big impact with a very small team? And so the Nuclear Weapons Summit was our first effort at looking at this idea of the dialogue, bringing people together who don't typically agree, don't typically communicate, and using the arts to leverage these, you know, to create these bridges or the anchors as we were talking about. Once we finish that, Nuclear Weapons Summit, that cohort of 47 people is still together. They're still working with Nuclear Threat Initiative and N Square, which is a funding consortium in San Francisco. And the community feedback I got, though, we won a national award for it, by the way, Best Futurist Work, you know, our little organization. But the community feedback I got was that, you know, now they're looking at Creative Santa Fe 2016. You guys are building an affordable housing project that may or may not come to fruition because this was still you know, a few years before we got the money to get it together. And then you're doing a nuclear weapons summit. And so to be super honest, the community was like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, good luck to you, but I don't get it. And so we really had as an organization to look at what our assets were, what our opportunities were, and how to actually make a difference in our community so our community could feel it, see it. Because I knew we were onto something. And so that's how Disruptive Futures Dialogues came about, was taking the lessons we learned about collaboration and the power of the arts from the Nuclear Weapons Summit, and we just opened it up and said to the community, if you have a major issue that you feel stuck, that you need new audiences, you need new ways of thinking about it, you need new voices, let us know, and we'll build out this sort of dialogue with next steps and outcomes. And in two months, we had like two and a half years of programming. And so we have over, I think we've had over 200 partners looking at issues, everything from affordable housing, rebirth of local news, the future of art, native resilience and rights, sustainable technologies. And for each one of these, we have partners that have very tangible outcomes that they want to see as a result of these dialogues. So it's not just a think tank. It's not just talk. We are working towards an outcome that our partners need to have and feel like they can only get that outcome through this methodology that we provide. So let's pivot and talk a little bit about cross-sector partnerships. 
does it seem to partners and funders fairly revolutionary that, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, it's a challenge for you to, to do something like an affordable housing project plus a mm-hmm. nuclear summit, but, but that's not all you do. And, and does it seem uh, to partners and funders fairly revolutionary that this kind of strategic planning and thinking stretching across sectors is coming out of an arts organization or would it be strange anyway? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, yes. <laughs> it would, I mean, this is the thing, like when you're doing something that no one's ever done, everybody gets confused, right? And so for the first, I'd say up until about two years ago, what I always heard was, we love creative Santa Fe, we can't understand what you do. And I think now that we have this very clear methodology, it's about partnerships, it's about collaboration, it's about the arts. And now that we have really tangible outcomes that we can point to, suddenly, like you were saying earlier, suddenly this is sort of a zeitgeist and people are like, oh, of course. And so I think we've finally gone from, I have no idea what you're doing, even though I have some sense it's good, to like, of course you're doing that. We need more organizations that do that. We want to start embracing that type of methodology. And so I think a great example is I was just um, this week invited to join the board of the Bullets and the Atomic Scientists in Chicago because they see how important it is to bring collaboration in the arts into their three sectors that they focus on, which is nuclear weapons, climate change, and disruptive technology. And so I feel like suddenly, you know, it's, it's been eight years coming, and now suddenly it seems obvious to everybody where, you know, for the first six years, I would be at a cocktail party and have to sit down with somebody for an hour to describe what we did and why, <laughs> and the fact that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> and luckily, our board really followed the whole time. <laughs> well, I think traditionally these um, silos, sectors, whatever we want to call it, 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 we're so 80s in that way, right? It all sounds like Berlin Wall, you know, sectors and silos. And <laughs> but, yeah. but these terms we use to refer to these different camps or groups, um, they, I don't think traditionally they talk to one another. You know, if you're talking about sort of the environmental, uh, there are overlaps for sure, but the environmental um, the crowd that's interested in doing something in the world about the environment, the crowd that's interested in doing something in the world to support the opera or, you know, uh, plays and the arts, and the crowd that's sort of interested in doing something in the world to support poverty, uh, you know, or to not support it, but to, to combat it, they normally don't end up around the same table. Uh, would you agree with that? Precisely. That is the exact crux of why we do what we do. You know, I think that we, because we came as an arts organization, we had access to the opera, to Site Santa Fe, to these very wealthy organizations that were doing really important work in the arts. And now we actually are combining that and their donors, their supporters with people that are working in poverty and with, you know, food scarcity and with all these other issues and bringing everybody to the table. First of all, gives other nonprofits so much more access to funding and awareness of what they're doing and also brings people together to start problem solving in a much more systemic way. And it's been just beautiful. We, last year we did a project with the opera where they had, they did Dr. Atomic as the opera. And so we had director Peter Sellers on stage with Ernest Moniz, who is the director of nuclear threat initiative. So we'd worked with them before he's former secretary of energy And then we brought in a choreographer for Dr. Atomic. And so it was just this beautiful, and we had students singing and and doing performances about their experiences and the Native American experience of nuclear weapons. And it was just an amazing 
experience seeing how these worlds can collide so beautifully and send a deeper message to everybody involved. So you're sort of, you know, proving the notion that if we get people from different walks of life together, um, two things are true. One, we, we can break down barriers. And two, uh, the arts might just be the, the wedge that does so. So I, I like that. I believe it is. Yeah. And I think if you look back, and this is again back to New Mexico's heritage and traditions, in most indigenous cultures throughout the world, there was never a word for art because art was embedded in everyday life. I mean, it's why I became interested in the arts is because I was interested in everything. And the arts was a great excuse to just study everything because it was through this one lens. And so at some point, we started separating the arts from everything else in life. And I think that's been to our detriment all these years. And so it's just time to bring art back into the daily conversation, daily life, daily problem solving, to our rituals and to our communications, because that's how it was forever until we had this sort of rupture that was very economic and, and culturally based and education based about, oh, no, the arts are for other people. The arts are for the elite people. The arts are this amenity. Whereas, I mean, that that's a very, very relatively recent Western construct. Yeah. I, I said in a, a previous show, you know, if you go back to the Middle Ages, the arts were everywhere. The average person saw them in church, saw them on uh, painted shingles outside of a tavern. Uh, the arts were a, a more normative part of life. The idea of a fairly sterile existence where art does not intrude, you know, it just wasn't, it didn't exist. On the other hand, in those times, an artist was a tradesperson, a craftsperson. And so right. they understood very much that they were in business. They didn't form as much of a specialized class. So I suspect those two things go hand in hand. The prevalence of the arts and the recognition that artists are, in fact, entrepreneurs, that they do not occupy some special... They're, they're not ascetics who live in the desert. <laughs> yeah, and they're not helpless children. I mean, I think that we were given a disservice when sort of the era of like the Jackson Pollocks and, and, you know, Francis Bacon's where they just, you know, they were like brilliant genius children that couldn't handle themselves. They had to have these patrons and handlers and, you know, they never had to look at a, a dollar. And I you know I think a lot of artists look at some of these icons and think that's the truth of the artist. And like you said, like that's never been the legacy. That was like a blip in time that created this myth of sort of the tortured genius, like incompetent in every way, but their craft. Yeah, it's true of not just the visual arts, but I think of arts in general. I mean, take fiction writing. I think you see a film like As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson. Love that film, love that character. But, you know, he could, he was kind of dysfunctional. He could barely go and get breakfast. And for every one of him, there are 5,000 writers making a living writing who are what we might call deadline writers. If they don't write, they don't eat. Um, it's a craft. It's a trade. Uh, you know, they haven't sold out or sold their souls. Um, there are things they won't do and, and they are pursuing their muse, uh, but they also are making a living much more candidly instead of going for passionate years in between books where, oh, I couldn't think of anything to write and the rest of the time I'm, I'm getting arrested. Uh, you know, that lifestyle works for a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the population. Uh, and it's not certainly not the model of the average career. So I think that's true of visual artists as well. And I think another exciting trend that I've seen on this exact line is that for so long, the arts had to be 
purely arts. And now you're seeing arts and technology, arts and design, arts and, you know, these different forms that I think I'm seeing the arts morph into places where artists can be graphic designers or video gamers, video game designers, and it's becoming more accepted and they're still considered artists. And I think that's a really positive move where they don't have to just be in a studio painting all day to feel like they're actually doing their craft. And then they have this like other job on the side, they can incorporate a livelihood with what they do as they're building out their career, you know, in whatever other form they're working on. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's becoming a thing that is much better accepted now. You know, we have artists that are being asked to participate in everything from uh, branding campaigns for major fashion brands to uh, collaboration on uh, solving social problems. And I, I think it's because there's a recognition here that we need ideas that come from outside the box because the traditional ideas we have from sort of checking in with the people we know who know the things that we know and they know what they know is it's not as effective. Uh, you only know what you know or you don't know what you don't know. So uh, the, the artist sort of solves that problem, if you will. I, I want to, as we, we go into the final segment of the show, I want to ask you a little bit about how individual artists might approach and think about some of these things, because we've talked fairly high level, you know, about the economic impact of artists. Um, we've talked uh, a bit about breaking down silos, partly at the organization level and, and partly for individuals. And, and yet the show is also a learning show for individual artists to get out of it what they can take away to enhance their careers and, and, and to thrive. Uh, so uh, l- let me ask you this, how might individual artists apply some of these big picture collaboration ideas? Uh, Can they get involved as problem solvers with an organization like yours or are there other ways? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, if if you look at artists that have become involved in some of these social issues, I think everything from, you know, volunteering and participating and really familiarizing themselves with what the issues are, I think the best way I can answer this is probably a little bit roundabout, but bear with me. When we put together Disrupt the Futures Dialogue, our first question is, what is missing in this dialogue? So, for instance, for affordable housing, we build 65 units to 100 units in the city per year, and our need is about 5,000 units. So we realize that the crisis we're facing is a crisis of imagination, And so we brought in a science fiction writing workshop group called Octavia's Brood to help us think in new ways about designing a future that didn't just look at the current, you know, what are the limitations we currently have? Let's just go and imagine and then come back. So I think if artists can look at what are their passions, what do they most care about, and then how can they bring their unique craft, the way they see the world, into helping people think in new ways about problem solving. And it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's, we in large part are that, um, the intermediary because it takes some effort and imagination to figure out like, okay, if we're trying to address poverty or we're doing arts and juvenile justice, like how do artists start to address juvenile justice? Well, what we found is theater. They're performing pieces of what it's actually like for kids to be incarcerated, to create more empathy, to start talking about the conversation in a different way rather than just these like delinquents. So that sort of thing, like how do artists interpret reality in a way that helps us see reality in a new way? So I, I think 
You know, a lot of artists are so tied to the day-to-day -day need to produce an income from the main line business trajectory they've chosen, you know, whether that's oil painting or sculpture or whatever, um, that some of the, some of these other, um, opportunities or issues get missed out upon because it seems like, uh, one, I, you know, it's sort of like that issue we talked about earlier. You know, I, I'll talk with you about, um, bigger issues once I get a sandwich, but right now I just need to eat. Right. But the other thing is that, um, it can feel a little bit and society can make it feel a little bit like that you've given up, that you aren't a legitimate artist unless all of your income and interest is focused on that one central thing uh, and it's doing really well. So what is what are your thoughts about that? Do you, you know, how do you um, handle the yeah. issue of I'm an artist, I'm not making enough money to be thinking about the larger world breaking down silos and um, how I can be a problem solver for the, the world's big issues. I think my answer is, is probably going to stay relatively abstract as well because these, these are good questions and if we had answers, we'd know exactly what to do and have a pathway. I would say it's sort of like companies looking at the fact that they're too busy surviving to become like a B core or to really look at like a triple bottom line. And I think that in our world today, we, we really don't have the luxury of not thinking about some of these bigger issues and how our professions, our craft can help make the world a better place. And so I don't think it's an either or either you make money or you, you know, involve yourself in social justice issues. I think that you pick the social justice issue that matters to you. And your work can, can translate that. And even just, I mean, if an artist, you know, donates some time or, you know, a, a painting, or, you know, I don't know exactly. I think, you know, artists are always tapped to donate things. I wouldn't say that necessarily is the right answer. But I think it's reframing the business model for every company in our world to look at how does my work not only, you know, create a life and a profession for me, but how does it actually contribute to being a better, to, to making a better world? And I would argue that if you can nail that story authentically, you're probably going to be more prosperous than you would if you just focused on, you know, covering your own nut and, and making sure that you were, you know, surviving day to day. It's it sort of step back and see how can you survive and also help the world thrive. And, and I'm idealistic, but I've seen it working that, that actually creates even more opportunity to to grow in your career. I mean, you know, when I, I, I founded multiple businesses and companies and, and when I started out, it was about putting a roof over my head, keeping it there, uh, maintaining and uh, some sense of growth. But I actually wish I could rewind back to that time, knowing what I know now, uh, where I declare, you know, a particular mission and not only know that I have that mission, but to be selective about which clients I pursue, which projects I take, and what it is I'm selling, which is never just the product or service itself, but it's it's the story of the product or service. I wish I'd known all of that back then, because I think it would have been much earlier prosperity at a much higher rate with much better growth. And so, yeah, I can kind of second that motion from from outside the arts world. And, and say, yeah, I think it's important to know what we stand for, what yeah. problem we solve, and, and uh, what change we want to bring about in the world, which is kind of key to finding and fleshing out our brand story. And maybe that is a tangible 
recommendation for artists listening out there. I agree completely. So what is it you believe in? And then how is every single choice you make following that? Because I agree. I mean, I th- everything you said that you were much more articulate, but that's exactly what I, what I mean is when you know what your mission is in life, the doors start opening. But if you don't know, then you're just kind of wading through and, and taking whatever clients you get or, or just sort of following your nose rather than being like, okay, no, I actually do have a sort of a strategic plan for myself and my life. And I'm going to follow that. And when people feel that and see that, I think that really does gather momentum and strength and support and prosperity. You know, and I, I can't help but play devil's advocate a little bit because, um, Cindy, as we wind down the show, this is my shot at being negative, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, the uh, we've been cheering for so long. But you know, on the one hand, we're talking about uh, bringing artists to the the table of decision making and policy because of um, the inherent sort of outside the box and cross disciplinary way that artists um, are required to think in order to be artists, and and sort of the way they can. Uh, help us solve problems we can't solve ourselves. And on the other hand, we're talking about the, sort of the other end of the spectrum, which is artists figuring out what problems they're interested in solving and coming to the table of those problems that they want to take on in the world. But, uh, you know, I find that there is a certain cynicism and not completely unjustified among some artists who I talk with about this, about sort of cause-based art and cause-based business storytelling where yeah. they're saying, well, it's really easy if fur is a big thing right now and you camp out on the fur issue and make your nut as an artist off of the fur issue. Um, but is that really what you would have done if uh, if it weren't a big issue right now? And so there's there's kind of an active debate over the difference between sort of creative problem solving on the one hand and simply opportunistic exploitation of an issue on the other. How do you think artists can navigate that difference both for themselves and I, I think it's less important that we do so for others, but how do you think we can make sense of it? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge important point. And I think that what, like what we look at when we're looking to partner with artists, typically, you know, cause when we first said we were going to partner artists with, with, with issues, everyone's like, what are you going to like paint paintings of nuclear bombs and thinking about stuff like that. And again, I think it goes back to the process. What is the toolkit you come to this world with? And how can you use that toolkit to make the world a better place? Okay, super Pollyanna optimistic, but deal. <laughs> and so I think that it has nothing to do with if you're an artist and, you know, fur is currently the issue, painting, you know, blood on fur or whatever. This is about saying my unique skill set in the world is seeing the world in a new way. And here's what I like and here's what I can do. For, I mean, it's such a hard question, but yes, I mean, creating objects that are trendy because of issues that are trendy are never going to be authentic. And so what we're talking about is it's just like if an artist heard that red was the color that's in vogue and so all their paintings are red, it's no different. And so the question is, is this authentically something that feels right to you? And that feels like you're contributing something that you uniquely can contribute. And if the answer is no, I'm just following a trend. Well, that's just like any other trend. You're not going to suddenly be an abstract expressionist because suddenly that's what people like. So it's the same thing. It's just using that lens and that filter of like, what is authentic to me? And how do I use the talents and the gifts I've been given and have honed over the years 
to make an impact in the world if that's what I choose to do. You know, I, I can't resist. I, I've got to ask you a, a couple of other questions and then I think we'll we'll call it good. One is without, you know, rolling out a stock villain, I'm not bringing out somebody to be pilloried at this, you know, because I think there are a lot of fine schools and stuff. But so so this is not meant to be one of those slow ball questions. But I can't help but ask you, do you think that fine art schools are contributing to the problem of envisioning a world where artists are firmly in their silos and have a single sort of track career path and are not part of this larger dialogue, um, but they're they're sort of on a a mythical, this is how you make it, kid. Anything less than this is not making it. Uh, good luck. Uh, you know, I release you, you baby sea turtles. One of you out of the thousands will at least survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are are fine, fine art schools contributing to some of that mentality? Um, or do you think that's changing? And, and if it's changing, what? Uh, how is it changing? What can they do? I think historically it has absolutely been that case. And I think that also amplifying that myth of like the rarefied artist who doesn't need to know anything and lives in this bubble and just can stay in their very esoteric world. And so, I mean, I remember when I first started kind of getting into the the business of art, being shocked by how, I don't think there were any art schools at the time that had any entrepreneurship track. They didn't have any business track. And I think that is changing. I think you're seeing a lot of art schools wake up to this fact and having entrepreneurship courses, business courses embedded in what they're doing. And so I think that's a really positive move. Um, But yeah, I think historically it definitely has been that sort of, you know, exclusive crazy kid club that, you know, as long as you were artsy and weird and, you know, couldn't really function that well in society, that probably meant you were a good painter. And I think that that myth is largely being debunked now also with just this idea that that creativity is, and this is a whole new topic, but that creativity and creative problem solving is sort of the skill set of the future in the face of AI and robotics and, you know, how, how technology is going to supplant a lot of the basic issues. I think now looking at creativity and creative problem solving changes not only how business schools are running, but also how art schools are running. Because they're saying, oh, this is actually an opportunity for us to pave a new pathway for for artists to make a difference. So, so I, I do think that there's an interesting blending now um, in the world of creative problem solving, entrepreneurship, business, that's really good for everybody. Okay, so one more. Um, you know, when I read Expectations, Great Expectations uh, by Dickens, uh, as a middle school kid, as many people did in my era, um, we, I decided that that must be the pattern for the world. What you do is you wait for a, a benefactor, a benign benefactor, <laughs> someone who will discover your brilliance. I mean, after all, the teacher said, man, you're brilliant. You you yeah. should go on. You'll do great things. And I thought, great. I have no money. Uh, I, I have very few skills, but someone will uh, discover my innate brilliance and come along and fund me. And I will use that brilliance to solve the world's problems, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and of course, that took on various evolutions as I got a little bit older, got out of middle school and, and still kind of waited, you know, eventually mm-hmm. someone will realize that I've built this and I've done this and, and they will come along. And of course, they never did. And yeah. uh, I remember the point in college 
that um, I discovered Horatio Alger novels, this whole trend in literature at that time in the 1860s. He wrote Ragged Dick. And it, it's a thing where, um, you know, they're the rags to riches stories where a benefactor or patron discovers the innate brilliance of uh, some contri hidden contributor, heretofore unknown talent, uh, and funds that person. And then that person's career takes off. And uh, and I quickly felt embarrassed and blushed and moved on from that and realized no one is coming to save me. And ultimately, uh, and that's when I founded my first business, by the way, no one is coming to save me. And the only way to do this is to do it for myself. And I've, I've got to, you know, <laughs> uh, take on the responsibility. But since then, um, I encountering the art world, I've encountered the myth of the art patron. Uh, and I'm not saying that there are no such things as art patrons and they're not artists who have had patrons and that patrons have had played no role. None of that I'm saying. I'm, it's sort of like the for every one of those, there's a thousand with no patron uh, who've needed to make it also. Uh, and so my question is, why do you think among educated adults, uh, often with fine art degrees, um, the, this sort of myth uh, from Great Expectations and Horatio Alger and all of this of being discovered yeah. still persists? Uh, or, or do you not think it's a myth? No, I do. I mean, I, I, so many of the artists I worked with when I had my own gallery, just, you know, they, I, I used to tease them and be like, you can't just sit in your basement waiting to be discovered. And I do think, I mean, I still have artist friends now that are still in their 40s waiting to, to be discovered and waiting for that big patron. And I think also in this, you know, when you look at the patrons now, these are not the Peggy Guggenheims, Leo Castellis. These patrons nowadays, and I won't name names, but I think we'll probably all figure out the types of patrons I'm talking about, are business people. And they are out to build as many galleries as possible, get as much money as they can, sell at auction. And so the idea of like the benefactor is no longer, these are people who are willing to invest for a massive ROI that may or may not work out for the artists, but more often than not, especially for young artists, it kills their career. And so I just think that, you know, A, that the entire myth is so misguided and B, if somebody does come to you with these promises, I'd really think about what you are exchanging for that level of patronage. Clarify what you mean. What do you mean that that patronage can kill a career? Well, if you if you have somebody who's a very famous art gallery art dealer, and you're in your straight out of Yale art school, and they move you quickly into their gallery and they start selling your art for lots and lots of money, and they're fronting you money, and then they start selling your art at auction, and then suddenly you can't sustain that, or your donor base can't sustain that but your paintings have already been selling for $50,000, $100,000 each. You can't go backwards and you can't sell. And then that dealer drops you and you have nowhere to go. That's a very, very common. It's almost like the problem of scaling too fast uh, as a business. Because it's exactly. It, it's greed. It's also like it's scaling too fast because you've taken on an investor, uh, which uh, guys like me are very cautious about. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I run a business. I don't want it to, I n not only don't want to take it public, I don't want other people uh, owning a stake of my business and making the decisions. But it's almost like if I brought on uh, an investor and that person owned enough of my uh, livelihood that they started making big decisions about how we're going to do it. And it was 
It's a little bit like doing business with Tony Soprano, you know? It's good for a while. Exactly. Uh, and then in the end, you know, Tony gets out good, but I'm I'm left with an empty store. <laughs> right, because I mean, I mean, you know, someone like Larry Gagosian doesn't really need every emerging artist he's promoting, but every emerging artist he's promoting needs him and needs his collectors. And so that relationship becomes acrimonious. It's not Larry Gagosian's going to suffer. And so, you know, there, there's always a balance. Like, it could be amazing for your career to say that that happened, but I have seen a lot of artists that go up really fast and then there's nowhere to go. And when, you know, when Tony Soprano tells everybody to pull out of the, the company, there's not a lot of people left. Uh, you know, I just realized that you're describing the Walmart model, uh, the model where, you know, a small mom and pop business suddenly gets in with Walmart. Uh, yep. And of course, they negotiate prices in their favor. And now you you have to produce enough to satisfy the demand at the price they're asking for. And you increasingly need to cut costs and uh, produce faster. And uh, if Walmart ever pulls out, you're hosed. Yep. Uh, but on top of that, meanwhile, you're not making enough of a profit to justify being in. But, you know, it looked good because it was the key to to volume. Yeah. So, yeah, there's been lots of companies go under for that reason. Some have just thrown down their uh, their tools and quit because, you know, I give up. It's not worth it. This is not I don't like my life anymore. So, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and the music industry is very much like that. I mean, you, you hear stories like that in the music industry all the time. Hmm. I, I do. And uh, yeah, wow, uh, I just got through reading a book called um, Why Sinatra Matters uh, by Pete Hamill. And it, oh. it talks about uh, a time when, you know, Sinatra was essentially trapped by Tommy Dorsey and his band and, and in a yeah. horrific contract, he's given away 45% of his earnings and he has to do it for years after he's left Tommy Dorsey. And, you know, that's the only way Tommy will let him leave and, and so on. And, and he's, you know, he's having, he's struggling. He's working his butt off day and night, but he's struggling. Yeah, I, I have. And, and he wants to quit at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, on a lighter note then, <laughs> that was fun. But on a lighter note, Cindy, what's, what's next for you over the summer? What, what is next in your plans? We're working really hard right now on our sustainable technologies, disruptive futures dialogue, looking at creating a sustainable technology R&D consortium here in Santa Fe. So that's a really fun project that we're looking at, um, working on building out. And we're moving on to a new Disruptive Futures Dialogue on housing the future, looking at, you know, if, if this project that we are building is 65 units, has taken eight years, seven city council resolutions, about a half million dollars of Creative Santa Fe's money. How do we think in new ways? And because we, we worked within the model and we've proven that we were successful and that success is a very, very small drop in the bucket. And so really looking at how do we reimagine what successful affordable housing policy and solutions can look like for our city. So that, that's going to be fun and just lots of good stuff. We're having Daba Mandela come out uh, for the folk art market. He's been one of our guests in the past. He's Nelson Mandela's grandson, super inspiring guy. So he's coming out next month. So there's lots of good things happening. And of course, your conference in September. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. 
For more information on Cindy's work, visit creativesantafe.org. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Cindy. It's been really great having you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And, of course, I will see you in Santa Fe in September as well. Can't wait. <laughs>